This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. This session is going to be especially dedicated to some very practical discussion on prayer. Our theme this week, of course, is to be filled with the Spirit. Fill us. And in Acts chapter 2, the people of God came together. They were in one accord and of one place. And certainly during that ten days, they were praying because Jesus had made a promise to send the Spirit. So they were praying about that. They were praying for that promise to come. God makes promises, but he wants us to cash the check through prayer. And so they were praying about that and uh, putting away their differences, preparing their hearts to receive the Holy Spirit. And, boy, if they needed it then, during the time of the first coming, we certainly need the Holy Spirit now. So it's extremely appropriate that we dedicate this time to learning about prayer. Uh, I'll confess that uh, in the brief time I had between the last meeting and this meeting, I ran to my room to brush my teeth. I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I hope you know what you're doing because I don't. There's so much I don't know about prayer that for me to stand before these people and as uh, some um, impersonation of an authority, I just want to tell you right now, don't have any illusions about that. Now, don't misunderstand. I prayed and I can tell you stories of miraculous answers to prayer that God has granted. But then I read about the giants of prayer in the Bible and in history and I realize I know very little. But... We, of course, want to begin by praying. And um, prayer is not all about posture, but posture sometimes shows reverence. If you're able to comfortably kneel with me and pray, then uh, I invite you to do that now. If not, we don't want you to feel guilty. Our Father... Lord, we are dedicating this time to you. We're coming before you and pleading, recognizing that um, our hearts are just vacuums that need the filling of your Spirit. We pray that you'll be present in this place, that you through the Holy Spirit will just dispel any distraction or evil influence that would prevent us from hearing your voice speak to our hearts. And as we talk about this very important subject, of learning how to pray, about the lessons we can learn through the Lord's Prayer, and how to uh, experience victory and the Spirit filling through prayer, we pray that you will be the teacher during this time. Give us open hearts, Lord. We've had lunch. It's been a busy day. It'd be easy for the devil to anesthetize us and put us asleep. We pray that you awaken us with the Spirit and give us clear minds. And then also, Lord, whatever shelf it is, in our mind where we store truth. Help us to place these things on that shelf so they can be retrieved and used. We're asking this now, and we're thanking, we're praying, believing, all in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I heard an interesting story. There was a small town in the Midwest full of church folks, a lot of church-going people, and... uh, Somebody showed up and had the audacity 
to put in a tavern, a bar. Well, the people in the various churches were outraged by this because they knew that in the train of the place where they were selling the most deadly drug, there'd be all kinds of problems, and they started having prayer meetings that God would do something to destroy this house of sin in this liquor store, this saloon that had gone into their community. Well, after a few months of praying like this, there was actually a lightning storm that came through the area, and lightning struck the saloon and burned it to the ground. Well, the tavern keeper had heard from various patrons that the churches were praying that God would somehow smite that place. So he got an attorney and he sued the principal church involved in spearheading this prayer campaign to destroy the saloon. Well, the church had to get an attorney and the church's attorney said, they could not be held responsible for what happened. And after this was argued for a while in the local court, the judge was just mystified because he said, really what I'm getting out of this is the tavern keeper believes in prayer and the church is saying, we are not responsible. (laughs) So how would you plead? Do you believe in the power of prayer? That it really does work and that it really does make a difference. I've got some uh, quotes here. And by the way, the best thing I could offer to you, uh, if you want something in the way of notes, there's a book called Steps to Christ. And in that book, there's a chapter called The Privilege of Prayer. And I would really recommend you read that because there's probably nothing I can say here that will top the powerful things that Ellen White wrote in such a simple way on prayer. But I'm just going to draw a couple of references here. And this is from the book Steps of Christ, page 93, that same chapter. Jesus himself, while he dwelt among men, was often in prayer. Our Savior identified himself with our needs and weakness in that he became a suppliant, a petitioner, seeking from his Father fresh supplies of strength that he might come forth braced for duty and trial. He is our example in all things. He is a brother in our infirmities, in all points tempted like we are. But as the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. He endured struggles and torture of soul in a world of sin. His humanity made prayer a necessity and a privilege. He found comfort and joy in communion with his Father. Here's the most important point I've got in bold. And if the Savior of men, the Son of God, God become a man, felt the need of prayer, how much more should feeble sinful mortals feel the necessity of fervent and constant prayer? Now, you know what I think the key is, if we could learn anything during our time together? The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. And, of course, Paul does not mean that we should then grovel around on our knees all the time praying. You've probably seen some pictures of Christians or even other religions that are on some religious pilgrimage and they're crawling to some shrine. God isn't expecting us to go through the day like that. But it's more like recognizing that Christ is a companion that is walking with you 
that is just at arm's length at any time during the day. Uh, periodically, Karen and I go out to dinner, and uh, you know we have a date, we visit, we we share, and and uh, I'll look around sometimes at other couples, and it's really odd. Sometimes I will see couples; they'll come into a restaurant. They're obviously married. You know, people start looking like each other after a while when they're married long enough, so you can tell. And uh, they come in and they sit down and they order. And they look around and they poke at their food and they eat and they dab their mouths with their napkin and then they pay the bill and they leave and I barely see them talk. And I think, how sad. You ever seen this before? And what would it be like if you went through the whole day with somebody, just you and them at the table together and you never spoke to them? Well, Christ said, I am with you always, even unto the end. So He's promised to be with you. How often do you talk to Him through the day? And I'm not just talking about when you have your formal times of prayer, but just as you're walking around, as you're doing your schoolwork, as you're shopping or whatever your work might be, just constantly firing off conversation and prayer from your heart to God. Sometimes it might be audible. Sometimes, probably most of the time, it's just in your heart. But prayer is not something you do three times a day only. By the way, there's Bible precedent for formal three times a day prayer. It says in Psalms 55, 17, morning, evening, and at noon will I pray. And what did Daniel do? What was his practice? As his custom was from his youth. But does that mean the only time Daniel prayed was during those three moments? Breakfast, lunch, dinner? Or was he in an attitude of prayer? One in a, if you're abiding in Christ, the Bible says whoever abides in him sins or not. What does it mean to abide in Him? How can you abide in Christ and not be in communion with Him all the time? So even right now as you're sitting there, hope you're praying for me, because if God answers that prayer, you'll get more out of it. Right? So we should be in an attitude of prayer all the time. Prayer is really the key that keeps us in communion with heaven. Now, just in my opening remarks, if you heard that, I shared something very quickly, but to me it's very profound. You know the sanctuary? Do you have a mental picture, or most of you fairly acquainted with what the the design of the sanctuary looked like? If um, they're not taping, so I can walk around here. If you know this platform here is sort of a rectangle, and then here this would be the entrance. As you walk into the sanctuary, how many doors were there? One door. Jesus said, I'm the door, right? One way in, all right. And when you get in, the first thing you see, well, you've got an altar there. That represents the sacrifice of Christ. Um, Then the next thing you see is the laver. That represents cleansing and baptism. You need to be born of the water and born of the Spirit. You've got fire in one, you got water in the other, right? The world was once washed in water in the days of Noah. It will be washed in fire again when the Lord comes. John the Baptist said, I baptize you in water, but the one who comes after me, he's mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. So you've got sacrifice of Christ. You've got baptism. Children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, there was a pillar of fire, right? They were baptized in the fire, and they went through the Red Sea. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, that's like being baptized in water. Then after you go out of the courtyard where you've got accepting Christ and the sacrifice and baptism, then you enter into the next chamber, which is called what? Holy place with one holy. Because there's one more to go, and that's called the Holy of Holies. So what's in here? You've got three things. These three things are your secret weapon if you want to go to heaven. Absolutely. It's so simple, but it's not going to change. There's bread. That represents the Bible. You need to read your Bible every day. If you can't read, listen to it. I listen in my car to the Bible and sermons. I listen on the radio. And uh, not only I read every morning, I got a Bible program. I use Logos. I used a Bible program called Quick Verse for years, but um, I used the old one. It, was, it just was so good. Finally, I went to Windows 7. It doesn't support it anymore, and I just was depressed for weeks. But in that program, now I use Logos, and they've also got it. Logos, Logos, either one. And they've got a devotional program in there, and it works on my phone, works on my laptop, works on my desktop, same price as all my devices. I am daily reading through the Bible in that program. And it's got a prayer list so that it reminds you, you can click off your prayer list, and if you forget to pray, a little icon pops up like the Holy Spirit, red flag says, you haven't prayed over these things today. So first thing I do, I wake up, I get some hot water, I turn on my computer, and I go to my devotional program. That's great, because it's good Bible reading and prayer right there in the office by myself every day. I've got a regular schedule. So you need your personal devotions, Bible study, and then you've got this candle with seven lamps. That represents light. Let your light so shine before men. We are to let our light shine. Christ is the light, but we're to let His light shine through us. Christ is the bread, but we're to read the bread of life. And then there was this unusual object called the altar of incense. And it had fire on it, and they put sweet-smelling incense on there. And the fragrance would waft up over the curtain and into the presence of the Shekinah glory, the Ark of the Covenant. What was in that box? Ten Commandments, the Word of God. But what was the mercy seat a symbol of? The throne of God. Now, this is the point that I wanted to make. you got one door and you walk in. What's your destination? Where are you going? The whole thing is a straight line. And the whole idea of the straight line is to get back to God. We have been separated from God by sin. Prayer is a medium to reconnect us with God. And so the whole thing is a journey. You accept Christ. You're baptized. You go from Egypt into the wilderness. And then you're in, in the wilderness. Did they have bread from miraculous bread? In the wilderness, did they have miraculous light? Were they illuminated in their camp by the pillar of fire? And they had that pillar of cloud? And then you go by this altar of incense, which represents prayer. And that was the last thing before the presence of God. You ever sung that song before, Sweet Hour of Prayer? Were you lying when you sang it? Is it sweet ten minutes of prayer? Or is it sweet hour of prayer? There's a verse in that song that says, at the end, anyone know what it says? Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Why does it say that at the end? Aren't we, will we pray in heaven? Not like we pray here. Now we see through a glass darkly. 
Prayer is now what we go through to get to God, but when you can talk to Him face to face, do you call that prayer? I mean, you're, when you're really standing in His presence, it's not going to be interceding like that through a mediator or through a veil. And so, for us in this life, the closest we can get to God is that altar of incense. It's through prayer. If you do those three things that you find in that room, if you're reading your Bible every day, if you're trying to be a faithful witness by letting your light shine, sharing your faith in some way every day. Now, not all of us are preachers and teachers and evangelists, but all of us have gifts that God gives us when we're baptized that we can use in some way to be a witness. How many are called to be witnesses? The only ones who are called to be witnesses are the ones that He gives the Holy Spirit to. How many is that? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You go and you wait in Jerusalem and you'll receive the promise of the Father for you will be my witnesses. I'll send you the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. So God gives His Spirit to the ones who are willing to witness for Him. And then prayer. Now, maybe if you're like me, you're here at a seminar talking about prayer because you know it's important, but sometimes you're not sure how to do it and sometimes you don't feel like it. Fess up. You ever think, I know I should pray more? Which means you feel like praying less than you do. Or you feel like praying less than maybe you should. We should pray anyway. Even if you don't feel like it. I think that prayer is so important, it's something that we teach ourselves to do, and then we develop an appetite for it. It's a whole different way of thinking. And so it's something we should want. You know, one time there were the disciples were. Um, they saw Jesus coming back from spending time in prayer, and his face was shining. When they had seen him before that, he had looked a little bit burdened, and he came back from prayer. And like Moses, when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining. And they had gone to synagogue all their life. They knew John the Baptist. They had been to the temple. They had heard thousands of long prayers. But when they saw Jesus come away from prayer, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Now these are the apostles, not just disciples. You think that they would understand at this point in their life something just as basic as teach us to pray. And then what did the Lord tell them in response to their request? what we call the Lord's Prayer. But it's not really the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Believer's Prayer because it's something He's asking us to pray. Now, I used to go to Catholic school. Anyone else here recovering Catholic? I was never baptized a Catholic, but I went to two different Catholic schools. Any of you ever do confession where they tell you to say the Lord's Prayer in repetition? Have you ever heard anybody do that? When someone's used to saying something in repetition, you can get where I love avocados. And I was astonished to meet someone that didn't like avocados. And I said, how can you not like avocados? And she said, we lived on an avocado farm. <laughs> and when avocados are falling out of the trees all the time, hitting you on the head, 
you can just start not really appreciating them anymore. I think the devil has taken the Lord's Prayer and told people to repeat it as some kind of a chant so that people would lose their appreciation for the potency and the importance of the theology and the doctrine that is in that great prayer that came from the lips of Jesus. Now, we've got prayers of Christ recorded in the Bible. And John 17 is the longest prayer of Jesus. But when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, He pointed them to the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to look at that together. It's what I think you might call the perfect prayer in many respects. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And you can look there. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I'm going to go back up to verse 5 because Christ is talking about prayer in this whole section. He talks about not doing your charitable deeds to be seen. And then He talks about real prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Christ is saying with some degree of contempt, if a person is praying to be a spectacle, that offends God. The only reward they're going to get is whatever advertising benefit they get from having others see them pray. So if you're praying and you're overconscious of others watching you pray, that's not really prayer. Because real prayer is sincere if it's anything. A real prayer doesn't have to be long, but it needs to be sincere. Can you think of some short, sincere prayers in the Bible? Peter is sinking in a stormy, dark sea. And he prays, Lord, save me. Three words. Did it work? Did Jesus hear his prayer? Was he saved? Can someone come to Christ and pray a short prayer and be saved? Yeah. What's the Lord looking for? Desperation. Sincerity. Um, the publican who came to church, he bowed his head and beat on his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a short prayer. But did Jesus say that prayer was answered? Why would you answer such a short prayer like that from such a wicked person? First of all, because God's merciful. The Lord saw that he humbled himself. He confessed his sin and he repented. And he was absolutely sincere. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So this whole idea that a prayer needs to be long, Jesus said it's the hypocrites that like to pray long prayers that they might be seen of men. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with a long prayer, especially if you're on your own. If you want to pour out your heart to God, Martin Luther used to pray three hours a day. John Wesley, two hours a day. Luther said, I can't get anything done unless I pray at least three hours a day. I think I won't get anything done if I pray three hours a day. But Luther, his idea was, I get so much more done with God's blessing. It's like people don't understand tithe. They think if I keep 100%, I'll have more money to spend. But you know as a believer, 90% goes farther than 100%. Isn't that right? And that's the way it is with prayer. Your day will have more hours in it for you to... What you attempt will be better blessed by God in less time if you dedicate time to God. And so, 
I shared in one of the earlier seminars, and I know not everybody was there, that one of the keys to successful Christian living is called mind over mattress. That means waking up a little bit earlier so that you can pray. If you know you've got a plane to catch, and if that, you don't listen to that alarm the first time it goes off, you're going to miss your flight and have to pay another $100 to rebook. Is it easier for you to wake up even though you're really tired? Because you don't want to miss the plane. That's expensive. If you know that you've got a plane to catch to heaven, and you've got to wake up a little earlier to catch it, is it worth listening to that alarm? Do you ever wake up, hit the ground, get busy so you forget to pray? Something comes up in the morning and it's easy to get distracted. I remember hearing about a little girl who before she went to bed at night, she'd kneel down and have her prayer and they would, she would take her shoes and throw them under her bed. And her mother asked her one time, why do you throw your shoes under your bed? She said, because in the morning when I have to get on my hands and knees to get them out, I remember to pray. Kids say some very simple things that are very profound. Heard about a father, he, he walked past his little girl's room. His, mother was, his wife was very devoted to the little girl's mother. And he heard his little girl play, praying the alphabet. She was just kneeling by her bed. And she was going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. But she had her hands folded and she was praying. And the father said, he waited until she was done. He said, dear, what are you doing? She said, well, sometimes I can't think of what I'm supposed to pray, and so I know if I pray all the letters of the alphabet, God will know how to spell out exactly what it is that I need. (laughs) Ah, Kids have such great hearts. Don't be like the hypocrites that like to pray standing that they might be seen of men. They have the reward. But you, when you pray, you notice Jesus doesn't say if you pray. Is prayer optional? Or did Jesus say to the believers, when you pray? It's hard to fathom someone can be the member of a church and go to church on a regular basis and really never pray or read their Bible. That must be a miserable experience. Because it's all about worshiping God and knowing Him. And you, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. When you pray, go to your room. And when you shut the door, pray to your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. People will see you've got that inner light. You know, personal story. When I lived up in the mountains, and um, I accepted Christ, I had not been to a Seventh-day Adventist church yet. I used to worship with charismatic Christians. Uh, I was worshiping with a non-denominational church. It was called the Joshua Tree in Palm Springs. I don't think they were affiliated with any denomination. But there was one gentleman that most of the Christians in Palm Springs knew, all the street people knew him. His name was Brother Harold. I don't even know what his last name was. He was a Jewish convert to Christianity. And all I can tell you is this man was just so committed to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He'd witness and encourage all the street people and all the hippies that were kind of finding Jesus. They called them Jesus freaks when you're in that transitional point between being a hippie and finding Christ, and you're still having LSD flashbacks, they, they sort of, you know, they'd have that enthusiasm and no inhibitions, and they'd, they'd find Jesus, and they'd just take somebody and shake them and say, do you know the Lord? Are you saved? And, and uh, that's kind of how I became a Christian. My friends were these, we called them Jesus freaks. You ever heard that term before? 
And uh, they were asking me all these questions about Christianity, and I wanted to argue with them. I thought the Bible was a fairy tale, and so I started reading the Bible so I could at least be informed to argue with them. I had no intention to believe it. Anyway, but I got to know Brother Harold. He would wake up at about 3 o'clock every morning. He'd read the Bible in English and in Hebrew, because he was Jewish. He could do that. He'd read the Old Testament. He'd then go to the Palm Springs uh, Hospital. He'd visit a number of the rooms. He could quote any verse in the Bible virtually from memory. He'd read Psalms 23 to people. He'd quote it to people. And his voice trembled when he read the Word of God. It's just like he was afraid to say the words of God because they were so awesome to him. And um, he had he used to give out Christian tracts on the corner in Palm Springs. It's an international city. There's always tourists. And so he's always giving out tracts on the street. Uh, just a dedicated man. Uh, he taught us how to get day-old bread out of the dumpster. He was a poor man. I went to his apartment one time. He lived in a little, little bitty loft, surrounded with books and stuff. And this man, I, I remember one time, he invited me to an early morning Bible study. It was like a 6 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning Bible study. A bunch of people got together. And one morning I came, and it wasn't because I was holy. I actually stayed up all night with my friends, and I finally realized I was in the transition point between being a totally lost worldling but being convicted about Christianity. And so I was up goofing off with my friends all night long. All of a sudden, the sun started to lighten the horizon. I thought, oh, there's that Bible study. So I showed up at the Bible study. Everyone thought I was so spiritual because I woke up so early. But they didn't know I just hadn't been to bed yet. <laughs> and I went in there. Brother Harold was the first one there. And I saw him praying. And... I don't know whether it was something divine, angelic, or if it was just where he was sitting when the sun started coming up. But he was sitting there. He wasn't kneeling. He was sitting in a chair in a room with kind of circular chairs, and one of the windows, I guess, was letting sunlight in, and his face just lit up. And the man just knew God. He would go to the Palm Springs corner and witness, and... Uh, he learned how to say God loves you in about ten different languages. I'm not exaggerating. I'd sit there with him, and I just felt holier being around him sometimes. He just beamed. And people would go by, he'd say, God loves you. And if they didn't understand, he'd say it in Spanish. He'd say it in Russian. He could say it in French. And he just wanted to tell everyone. And he, I told you, he gave out tracts. Well, the police started giving him a hard time because he'd give these tracts to people. They'd say, thank you. Then right up the street, they'd throw them away on the ground. And they started giving him tickets because they said, you're responsible. You give these people the tracks. They end up on the sidewalk. The store owners are complaining. You can't be handing out the tracks anymore. And so you've seen these guys that walk around with place cards on their front and their back, and they look like kooks. Brother Harold got one of these things. He said, look, I'll put the track on me. And so he had some of it. It was in big letters. But I don't even remember. It's something about God loves you. In the back he had John 3.16. It was something real simple. But he'd stand on the corner and he'd walk around. Everybody knew him. And they probably thought he was crazy, but he wasn't. The man just loved the Lord with all of his heart. And one day uh, he used to ride this three-wheel bicycle around Palm Springs. Uh, and I was walking up the street one day. I was hitchhiking from one part of town to another. I couldn't get a ride. And he rode by. And he knew me. And he stopped and he talked to me for a moment. And I guess he could detect that I wasn't where I was supposed to be spiritually. And he, he just really surprised me with a question. He said, Doug, how long can you hold your breath? I thought that was a strange question, but I was glad he asked me. 
because I used to see how long I could hold my breath when I was in school. I was so bored in school. I would watch the clock and just wait for the class to be over. And just to kill time, I would hyperventilate and kept trying to push my record for holding my breath. And I got to where I could hold my breath for four minutes and ten seconds. And I do free diving now. Where I, and I'm serious. I'm, I'm not just telling you this. I, my wife held me under once. Four minutes and ten seconds in the jacuzzi. And so I know I can hold my breath at least that long. And so I was very proud and I said, I can hold my breath four minutes and ten seconds. He said, well then you shouldn't go any longer than that without praying. And he said, how often do you eat, Doug? I said, oh, two, three times a day. He said, that's how often you should read or meditate on God's Word. And Doug, what's going to happen if you don't get any exercise? You know, here I'm riding my bicycle. What do you do if you don't get any exercise? I said, well, I guess you get weak and flabby. He said, that's what's going to happen to your Christian experience if you don't share it with someone else. He said, you've got a physical body that has very real needs, and if you don't answer those needs, you will die. You've got a spiritual body that has very real needs. And if you don't regularly take care of those needs, you will die spiritually. And prayer is crucial to our spirits. I haven't gotten to the Lord's Prayer yet, have I? But when you pray, do not use... I'm in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, uh, verse 7. When you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do. For they think they'll be heard by their many words. You know, to me, that's about as plain a statement as you can find that you're not supposed to say the Lord's Prayer in vain repetition. Now, when it says don't pray in vain repetition, what about when Elijah prayed seven times for the rain? Was that vain repetition? No, I bet every one of his prayers was a little different. He was praying about the same thing, but I don't think he was reading from a script. Can you tell me somewhere in the Bible where a person read their prayer? Well, the Psalms, a lot of them are prayers. I'm not trying to criticize somebody if you've ever... Any of you get nervous that you have to pray in church on Sabbath? Nothing wrong with your praying in advance and saying, I'm going to record that and then I'm going to, just so I don't forget, you know, have a little note there and kind of peek with one eye. So when you're praying... And uh, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, really I think prayer needs to be coming from the heart to God. Uh, if every time I talked to you I had to pull out a script, what would you think about our relationship? I was really insecure. Or <laughs> there would be something disingenuous about that, wouldn't there? You'd want me to be just talking to you freely from my heart. So I think every time Elijah prayed for rain, he just found another way to articulate it. And he prayed from his heart. And I think that's what the Lord wants from us, is for us to just be praying from our hearts to Him. Don't pray in vain repetition. He said, don't be like the heathen, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. Why pray if God already knows? Why, if God knows what we need, then why are we praying? Are we telling Him anything when we pray? Is anything you say in your prayer informing God? Or does God already know everything? Do you like to hear from your little children what their needs are? 
even though you may know in advance what their needs are, you like to hear from them. The other thing that's happening is when we pray, prayer doesn't bring God down to us. Prayer brings us up to God. Prayer transforms us. The other thing is there's a great controversy. And because man initially rebelled and ran from God, Adam and Eve ran from God, the devil says, this world is mine, these people are mine. And God says, well, I want to hear it from them. If they're telling me they don't want to be yours, Satan, if they're telling me that they want to be, uh, belong to me, and they ask me, then I've got the right to intervene. And so every day when you pray, you're asking God to intervene from the devil wanting to kidnap us all. You're recognizing you need his help. And it's something that should be on an ongoing basis. It should be daily. You know, it's like that wife after uh, 30 years of marriage, she says to her husband, how come you don't tell me you love me anymore? And he says, well, I told you when I married you, if I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) Now, how well do those relationships do? (laughs) Any of you like to hear it periodically? You like those periodic reminders that I love you? I know my wife likes to hear it. Therefore, don't be like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask. In this manner, therefore, pray. Now, does Jesus say, this is the very prayer you are to repeat? Or does He tell us this is a manner of prayer? That means in the Lord's Prayer, we're getting an outline of how we should pray. And this is beautiful. How does it begin? Oh, so many things I can tell you right now. First of all, it is a selfless prayer. Most of my prayers, to be honest with you, it's probably like your prayers too, so I'm not embarrassed to say it. It's, Lord, here's what I need. Do this for me and that for me and this for me and that for me and give me this and that and give it to me at a discount. (laughs) And when I think about the people that need salvation, I usually start with the inner circle. Me and my wife and my kids and the extended family and then it goes from there, right? Your prayers at all like that? And Lord, protect me (laughs) and my wife and my kids and the family. And uh, Lord, bless Sacramento Central and the churches everywhere and the missionaries in the foreign lands. But you notice in our prayers, it always starts kind of like a, a circle where we're at the center of the universe in our prayers. Where in the Lord's Prayer do you find the word, I, me, my, mine, myself? It's us, our. All through the Lord's Prayer, it's we're in this together. You know, in the Bible, not only when it comes to prayer do we pray together, But even repentance is something that happens corporately. I often get on my knees and I'll say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. But in the Bible, you'll find the great people in the Bible who prayed and God answered their prayers. They said, Lord, forgive us our sins. They felt some corporate need. Isaiah, uh, yeah, when Isaiah saw the Lord in chapter 6, he said, he confessed his sins. He said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It was corporate. Daniel chapter 9. How would you like to pray like Daniel? 
Daniel chapter 9, at the end of his prayer, Gabriel shows up. Wouldn't you like an angel to appear at the end of your prayer? And the angel says, at the beginning of your prayer, I was sent. Wouldn't you like an angel to come when you pray? Well, you know what Daniel said in that prayer? He confessed his sin and the sin of his people. So I should not only be concerned about the Lord forgiving me my trespasses and leading me and delivering me and feeding me. It doesn't say, feed me, deliver me, lead me in the Lord's Prayer. It says, feed us, lead us, deliver us, keep us. I should be concerned about your daily bread as I'm also concerned about my daily bread. The other thing you find right in the opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father. It tells us about relationship right there at the beginning. What right do we have to pray to God? Does a person have more access to God when you've got a relationship of a parent-child? What relationship in the Bible is going to get the best response? Isn't it the parent-child relationship? When Jesus wanted to talk about a father who would receive a wayward son, he used the parent relationship, the father-child relationship. Even though that boy went off and he squandered the father's work, his years of inheritance he had gathered up, as soon as the boy came home, how could he turn his son away? Opened his arms and received him. So Jesus employs this language to tell us that we, we're not saying, Mr. President, when you pray. You're not talking to God as the um, police chief or the mayor or the governor or senator. We're talking to God who's above all the presidents and senators as a father. Abraham Lincoln used to entertain all kinds of important people in the White House. But no matter how busy he was, whenever Todd knocked on the door, he could come in, Todd Lincoln, his son, he could come in and he could see the president. And you know, one reason that Lincoln was so careful to see his son is he lost a son. And so whenever his boy wanted time with him, he'd stop what he didn't matter how important the dignitaries were, he'd stop what he was doing, he'd find out what the little request was of his son, his son always had access to his father. Do you think God loves you less than an earthly parent does his child? Our Heavenly Father loves us infinitely more. So right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, God is telling us, you've got my ear because you're my child. By the way, it's not in the Lord's Prayer, but I should say it right now. Someone may have asked this later. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? What does that mean? My mind is just racing with things I want to say to you about prayer. Something else popped in my mind, but I won't forget that. Just a pet peeve of mine. While God is a father, he is also a king. And there's that balance between knowing that the Lord is your father. Is Jesus our friend? There's been a lot of emphasis lately on our friendship with Jesus. But I think we've got to be careful not to think of Jesus as our buddy that we elbow and slug in the shoulder. You know, you can lose that idea of, yes, he is a friend. And it's a privilege that we can call him a friend. But we don't slug him in the shoulder and get irreverent with him. He is a king at the same time. So when you do pray to God, and if you're going to pray out loud, don't slur your prayers. I sometimes have to talk to my kids. They're so used to saying the same thing in their prayer. I hear a lot of youth, they pray, Heavenly Father. What was that? 
Heavenly Father. Slow that down. Dear Heavenly Father. Have you ever heard that before? And uh, just so you're talking to the king. Uh, you know, whatever your best speech eloquence is, save it for talking to God. Don't, don't you think he deserves it? Whatever it is. If, if, you know, I have, I've had a lisp for years. It's not near as bad now. I used to not even be able to say the word lisp without lisping. But now I'm, I'm a lot better than I was. And so, yeah, if you got an impediment, that's fine. But whatever your best eloquence is, save that for God. And speak to Him with reverence. But why do we pray in Jesus' name at the end of our prayer? Is it just some kind of seal we're supposed to stamp? And sometimes I hear people end their prayer that way and it's like, oh yeah, I've got to punctuate my prayer by mentioning this magical word at the end. And it's, you know, in Jesus' name, amen. Why are we doing that? Is it some kind of abracadabra that we put on the end of our... That'd be really hard to sign, wouldn't it? Abracadabra. <laughs> Is that, you know what I mean? Is it some password? Somebody told me a story one time that I understand is a true story. During the Civil War, there are two very close friends, Bill and Jack. And they were from the North. And in one extremely serious battle, Bill was mortally wounded. And they had been just the tightest friends for years during the war. And he was dying on the battlefield. Jack managed to get over to him. And uh, as he was dying with his trembling hands, he pulled the letter out of his pocket that he had written to his parents. He, they knew they were about to go into a deadly battle. You know, even in our military today, when soldiers are about to face a very serious battle, they tell them to write home. Our son was in the Marines. They said, you better write a letter home. You've got to have a will made out. And he had written a letter to his folks knowing that he might not survive the battle. And he handed the letter to his friend Jack. He said, look, if you need anything, you know my folks will help you. They're wealthy. He said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And shortly after that, he died. So Jack survived the battle and he had this blood-stained letter from his friend Bill. And uh, after the war, he went around for a while and there, were, there was a big glut of unemployed young men after the Civil War. And they went around on the trains doing farm work for people, and they were known as the ho-boys. Not homeboys. The ho-boys, because they carried garden hoes with them, and they would hoe the corn. That later got changed into hobos. And that's where the word hobo comes from. They used to ride the rails looking for work. And so for a while, Jack went around on the trains, and he tried to look for work, and... and uh, Things got really bad and his clothes got disheveled and dirty. And finally he made his way up to Connecticut where his friend Bill had lived. And uh, he carried this letter with him for years, but he just never felt that he was worthy to stop by. And he always thought, I need to deliver the letter. But he felt responsible. He said, there I was with my buddy when he died. Maybe I could have done something. Why did he die and I lived? And he had that guilt. So it took a long time for him to get the courage, but he thought, I need to take this letter to him. I promised I'd hand deliver it. So he goes and he finally finds the address and there's this beautiful big brownstone building, big oak door, big brass knocker, obviously a wealthy family with servants. And uh, he finally mustered the courage. He came up to the door and he tapped on the knocker 
After a while, the dignified gentleman came to the door and he could quickly see it was a hobo. And he said, I'm sorry, young man. He said, these are tough times and I, we can't help every hobo that comes by. And the door began to close. And for a moment there, um, Jack didn't know what to say. And, and he said, I've got a letter from Bill. And as soon as he said, Bill, the door stopped and it began to open up again. He said, Bill? He said, Bill, your son. And he pulled out this letter that was still stained with brown spots from his blood. And he said, I was his friend, Jack. He said, you're Jack, the one that he wrote about. And the father, with his trembling fingers, he took this letter and he read this last letter and the tears were streaming down his face. And he looked up at Jack and he wrapped his arms around him and he said, anything that belonged to our son is yours. And they brought, he brought him into the mansion. What changed everything? Because he had a relationship with the Son, that gave him access to the Father. When we pray in Jesus' name, how close is the Father to the Son? How much does the Lord love us in that He gave His Son? And so, when you come to the end of your prayer and you say in Jesus' name, think about what you're saying. There's a lot of ways you can say it. You can say in the name of your Son, in the name of Jesus, for Christ's sake. In the name of your beloved. In other words, you, the, the point is, you're coming and you're asking God to hear your prayer, not because you deserve it. We're strangers and outcasts. But we've got promises from the Son that give us access to the Father. And so you're claiming those promises at the end of your prayer that God will hear your prayer. And you know what? It's not for God's benefit almost as much as yours, for your faith that God is going to hear your prayer. Because what's one of the most important elements in prayer? When you pray, believe that you will receive the things that you're asking. If you come to God and you don't believe, it's sort of an insult to God. So it's assumed you're going to believe that you're going to get what you're asking for from the Lord if we pray according to His will. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now we've got a problem right off. We've got a wonderful relationship but he's up there and we're down here. So right there at the entrance of that prayer, we're realizing we're separated by a vast gulf. There's an expanse. This prayer is designed to connect us. Hallowed be thy name. God is our Father. God is our friend. God is holy. We are not. Hallowed. What does that mean? Holy. Reverend is your name. So when you come to the Lord, we ought to come recognizing how big He is, how holy He is, how vast the universe is. Now, the, the Lord's Prayer is, is divided actually like the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are divided where you've got the first 40% roughly represent our petitions that are between us and God, this relationship. And then the last 60% deal with this relationship. In the Lord's Prayer, you've got seven petitions. The first, roughly 40%, deal with our relationship with God. The last 60% deal with the horizontal relationship. Salvation is all about those two relationships. Love for the Lord, love for your neighbor. And that forms a cross, doesn't it? It's this love relationship, and this is why the Pope always does this. And it's this... <laughs> Come on, loosen up. I just tease me. I always feel like the Pope when I do this. But it's, you know, it's a cross. I mean, how else am I supposed to do it? 
So I'm trying to illustrate. So you've got the horizontal love relationship and the vertical love relationship, and that's all in the Lord's Prayer. You've got these first petitions that are dealing with thy name, thy kingdom, thy will, and then you've got the horizontal needs that are there. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Right there in the prayer, we're learning that he's a king. Right at the beginning, it talks about the kingdom. At the end, it talks about the kingdom. It tells us we're subjects of his kingdom. And our principal desire should be to expand his kingdom. Your will be done. Why would we pray that God's will is done? Isn't God's will going to be done anyway? Is everything that happens in the world God's will? No. God is not willing that any should perish. Will some perish? He's not willing that any should perish. Was it God's will that Adam and Eve disobey? Do a lot of bad things sometimes happen in our lives that God didn't want to happen? I was talking with a sister, I don't know if she's here right now, that uh, has a Jewish ministry. And uh, it's very difficult reaching the Jewish people uh, around the world because so many came out of the Holocaust atheists because they thought if God is love and if there is a God, how could he let such a horrific thing happen? And they don't understand that there's a battle in the world and there are casualties of the war. Not everything that happens is God's will. And so there's a lot of pain and suffering. We're to pray for God's will. And God will do for you when you ask Him things that otherwise might not happen. Thy will be done on earth. How does He want His will to be done on earth? As it is in heaven. Now here's where I like, this is the New King James. I like the King James better. Where He says, Thy will be done in earth. It's actually more accurate. What are you made out of? Earth, dust. The Lord took the elements of the earth. So when God says, Thy will be done in earth, that means in me, as well as in the world. He's not saying, Thy will be done on planet earth, just. He's saying, Thy will be done in the world, yeah? Thy will be done in me. How? As it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. How does He want His will done on earth? As it is in heaven. He wants to live out His will in you, and how can that happen? just as we get the Spirit of God. Amen? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you know, I'm reading this right out of my Bible, but I've got some notes here that uh, I wanted to share with you. John 6:38, talking about the will of God. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. What is a Christian? Follower of Christ. Why did Jesus come? To do the Father's will. When you accept Christ, we're to be doing His will. What did Jesus pray? What's the most difficult prayer you can pray? What's the most difficult prayer Jesus prayed? Not my will, but Thy will be done. How often do we have to pray that prayer? Every time we're tempted. How often are we tempted? If you're a Christian, you're tempted every day. People who say they aren't tempted are probably just going downstream and so they feel no resistance. That's pretty sad. But if you're trying to swim against the stream of the world and the flesh, you're going to feel temptation every day. So you've got to pray, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And who's going to heaven? Jesus said, Matthew 7:21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but they 
that hear the will of God? Do the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's very important. It's not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but those that do the will of God. So the Lord wants us to be perfectly conformed to His will. And we have to pray for that. Give us, now you're transitioning from the name of God and the kingdom of God and the will of God, and I'm actually rushing here to maybe provide a few minutes for questions. And then he's making the petitions of give us this day our daily or our needful or our necessary bread. Now, how many of you woke up today and you were worried that you weren't going to get any nutrition? How many of you didn't have meal tickets? (laughs) You're worried. Where am I going to go? Am I going to get my food? Most of us, you know what? I read something that National Geographic put out that um, we're now living in the first time in the world's recorded history that there are more overnourished people in the world than undernourished. Now, there are still a lot of people malnourished. There's a lot of starvation in the world. But this is the first generation when there are more people who are overnourished than those who are undernourished. So, what do we do? Delete the part of the prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread because we don't really need to worry about that? Of course, with the economy the way it is, some of you probably really pray about that. But there's more to it. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Christ said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, that one word there, bread, encompasses so much in the Christian life. You know that there's bread with everything. It comes in a variety. It's the staff of life. It comes in a variety of forms. People go to McDonald's. What's a hamburger without bread? Now, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm just asking a practical question. It's a slab of beef. <laughs> right? You go to Taco Bell. Is there bread? What's a burrito without the bread? Pizza without bread is what? It's tomato sauce mushed up with cheese. Isn't that right? What's an ice cream cone without bread? Ice cream. <laughs> but just about everywhere you could go, have you noticed that bread is central? It doesn't matter if you're feasting at the banquet table of the most expensive restaurant or you're in the poorest hovel. Somewhere on that table, there's usually, it might be flat bread, it might be pita bread, it might be tortillas, it might be a French loaf, but somewhere there's going to be bread. So when you pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, it's talking about the bare essentials that everybody needs every day for life. And then Christ said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So when we pray, Lord, give us our daily bread, did the Lord give daily bread to the children of Israel? And what they would do is they would just... As they woke up in the morning, they'd crawl out of their tents, they'd roll over on their backs, and they'd open their mouths, and God rained it down into their mouths. Is that how it worked? Or did they have to go out and gather it? So when you pray that God gives us daily bread, is there something you need to do to make sure that you pick it up? He might give you daily bread, but you have to collect it. He'll place it within reach. That's Bible study. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Feed our souls with the Word. Break thou today the bread of life unto us, Lord. That's, I could, oh, I could see so much more about that. Will God answer that prayer if we ask Him? Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 11 about a man who comes to his friend in the middle of the night and he bangs on the door and he opens the upstairs window. He says, what do you want? It's late and family's in bed. And he said, uh, I've got someone came to visit. I don't have enough bread. And he says, oh, it's too late. Come back tomorrow. He says, but because he's his friend, he'll give it to him. Because he persists. God will give us that bread if we ask him. We need to pray before we read our Bibles. Luke 18 tells about that widow who was persistent. And he said, Shall God not avenge His own who cry out to Him day and night, though He bears long with them? We need that daily bread. And then the next thing, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know the story in Luke chapter, no, no, Matthew chapter 18, the unmerciful debtor. King has a bunch of servants. One is found who owes 10,000 talents. He's brought before the king. He cannot pay. He falls down before the king and says, Lord, have mercy on me. Be patient with me. I'll pay it all back. Except that 10,000 talents, even if it was talents of silver, is like $52,800,000. So he's squandered the king's money. How can he pay all that back? King has mercy on him. He says, tell you what, forget it. I'm going to forgive you. Now, if you had just been forgiven an outstanding debt of $52 million, first of all, would you know if you owed somebody $52 million? You probably would be realizing you were running up a debt somewhere. You wonder how anyone could run up that big a debt, but that represents our sins against God. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me and I'll pay it all back. He says, forget it. That same servant went out who had been forgiven that enormous debt he found a fellow servant that owed him 40 pence a day's wages, took him by the throat and said, I'm going to throw you in a desert prison. He fell down before his friend and said, be patient, I'll pay you back. Now, if I owed you $52 million, you're out of luck. You're probably never going to see it. But if I owed you $42, I could find a way to get that before the sun goes down today. Even if I had nothing... I could, I'd panhandle. I'd find a way to get it. I know how to panhandle. I can play the flute. And I found that if I start singing to people, they pay me to stop. So I know how to panhandle. <laughs> Little trick is, take a puppy with you. And say, my puppy has no food. We found, when we were living on the streets in Palm Springs, we used to pass the puppy around. <laughs> all the panhandlers. <laughs> I've repented of all that. I'm, I've been, that's before I was saved. I'm just telling you. There's a lot of gimmicks out there. I could get $42. But that man would not forgive his friend that owed him $42 when he had just been forgiven $52 million. So when we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, this is a very important part of the Lord's Prayer. Look in your Bible. If you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 6. You can read the Lord's Prayer there. It ends with verse 13. But Jesus makes one, how many? One comment. He backs up on one point in the Lord's Prayer. That means He is emphasizing one very important thing to pray about. It's unforgiveness. It's bitterness. It's division. 
And he says in verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does that make you shudder to think about that? It should. Is God saying, now I reference that parable in Matthew 18 deliberately because I don't want you to misunderstand this. Is God saying, tell you what, make your deal. You go forgive everybody that you're mad at or that hurt you and then I'll forgive you. Who does the first forgiving? In the parable, the man who owed the 52 million first comes before the king and the king forgives him first. Then he expects him to pass on the forgiveness. When he does not pass on the forgiveness, the king has him brought back before him and he said, I forgave you 52,800,000, 10,000 talents, because you asked me. Could you not have mercy and compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on you? And because he was unmerciful, he delivered him to the tormentors until he should be tormented for $52,800,000. Now, I guess back then they didn't have chapter 11 or chapter 13 or chapter 7 or bankruptcy. And if you owed the king money, they put you in a prison where there were people and their full-time job was to torture you according to a price list on a wall. How would you like to uh, go to a debtor's prison to be delivered to the tormentors owing $52,800,000. When you think about how much God has forgiven us, do we really have any right when we sit at the foot of the cross to be unforgiving to others? How much God has forgiven us is like the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles. By comparison, what we do to each other, as bad as you've been hurt and as wicked as some of the things are that we do to each other, still by comparison to what happened to Jesus... It's the difference between 93 million miles to the sun and one foot between us. It's a very big difference. So yes, it's hard sometimes to forgive what others have done from you, but it's easier when you look at Jesus on the cross for your sins to realize, you know what they did? By the way, you know what helps me? Just a personal thought. How many have been hurt by somebody before? Just wanted to get you to all buy in. I know you all have. And uh, maybe you're still angry. Some have been really hurt. Some people did terrible things. Sometimes it's awful things happen in your families. I don't want to take you to those places necessarily. But you know what's helped me? We've all got those experiences and people that really hurt us. It helps me realize that sin is a disease that makes people behave very badly. And when people treat each other very badly, you've got to remember they're sick with a disease. And just realizing that sinners do sinful, wicked, selfish things because they're sinners. And after they find Jesus, some of those people that did these terrible, wicked things can actually be Christians and have changed hearts. Makes it easier not only to forgive them, but ultimately we're to love them. Not just forgive them, but love them. Ooh, that's hard sometimes. Amen? But what does Jesus want us to do? If you forgive not men their trespasses. One time Robert Louis Stevenson was praying. And as he was saying the Lord's Prayer with his family, he stopped when he came to this part about forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Luke says forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I just remembered another kid was praying one time. His father heard him saying the Lord's Prayer. 
And he said, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive others who put trash in our baskets. (laughs) So Robert Louis Stevenson was praying. I put illustrations in my illustrations. Robert Louis Stevenson was praying. And when they came to that part that said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, he stopped and his family kept going. And his wife said, dear, what's the problem? He said, I can't pray that because I don't want God to forgive me the way I forgive others. And I know exactly what he means. Sometimes we're not very forgiving with others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then do not lead us into temptation. Now why are we praying that? Is God wanting us to beg him not to tempt us? First of all, does God tempt us? Does God tempt anybody? James 1.3 When someone is tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does He tempt anybody. So in the Lord's Prayer, we're not begging God, please don't tempt me, God. Well, why does it say, lead us not into temptation? Is God wanting to drag us down the road to be tempted? Or, you know how that's really better translated? This is not a great translation, to be honest. Really, even in the Lord's Prayer, the way that should be translated is lead us away from our natural tendency towards temptation. The lead us not means lead us away from temptation where we are prone to go towards it. Like a preacher said one time, we're supposed to flee temptation, but most of us crawl away and hope it catches us. Because our hearts are carnal and we're inclined towards it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Luke 21, verse 36. We are to pray always that we might be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, God wants us to all be praying always. And then finally, talk starts with God's kingdom and then in Matthew it ends with God's kingdom. For yours is. In the battle between good and evil, do we know who the winner is? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, there's a battle going on between good and evil. And it's only those that are on speaking terms with God now are going to have a relationship with the Lord that's going to sustain them through this final crisis. During World War I, the front lines used to be just within almost lobbying distance. They had the trenches in Europe dug sometimes just a hundred yards from each other, forces firing cannons and rifles over at one another. And uh, one night, this one soldier was seen coming back from the woods and he was arrested by the guards. He was coming back to his own troop. And they said, what were you doing out there? Were you conspiring with the enemy? And he was brought to the captain. He said, no, I wasn't. I was praying. And they were real doubtful. They said, praying? You went off in the woods to pray? He says, I went off in the woods to pray. How do we know you weren't transferring notes? We know you weren't using the latrine because it's the other direction. What were you doing going off in the woods? I was praying. They pulled out the rifle and they said, all right. You know, for treason, if you're a traitor, the penalty was execution. And the captain said, you say you're praying? You need to start praying right now because unless you can convince us, you're about to meet your maker. And he got on his knees and he prayed a very eloquent, heartfelt, free-flowing prayer that God would save him and, 
and save the army and, and deliver him. And, and uh, the captain told the other soldiers, he said, put your rifles away. He said, uh, if you hadn't done so well in drill, you wouldn't have passed review. But I could tell from listening to you right now that you're on regular speaking terms with the Almighty. Right now, we need to have a relationship with God where we are regularly in prayer and uh, getting to know the Lord, um, have an ongoing relationship with Him. What is your prayer life like? You know, what I'd like to do is I'm going to close this section off and then if someone to stay behind, then we'll take questions. I know there's a break and there's some other segments you may want to go to. But I tell you what, I'd just like you to stand with me right now. And I'm going to ask you to say the Lord's Prayer with me, but it's really your prayer. And I want you to think. I want you to really think about what we've just talked about as we say it and be asking God to help us have a new and a deeper experience with, with the Lord in prayer. Knowing God through prayer, prayer is the key in the hand of faith that opens the resources of heaven. It's everything. You know, we're here at this convention especially praying for the Holy Spirit. And we want God to do something like He's never done before. And that means I think we're going to have to pray like we've never prayed before. You know, we're meeting the criteria of Pentecost. We're in one place. I hope we're forgiving each other if there's any division and we'll be in one accord. And if we're in one place and we're one accord and we're praying for the same thing, one more very important point, is there added benefit in corporate prayer over individual prayer? The fervent, effectual prayer of one righteous man avails much, but what if you get three or four righteous men praying together? Is there added benefit? You bet there is. God says, if my people that are called by my name humble themselves and pray, God will hear when we come together as a group where two or three are gathered in my name, there's more power in that prayer. You know when, I know you're standing, but you needed it anyway. Just listen, one more second. It's a proven fact. It's easier to say no to one person than two. You go and you buy a car, especially if it's a new car, even a used car, and after you talk to that initial salesman, when he starts negotiating the final deal, he brings in the closer. And all of a sudden, you get two car salesmen you're talking to. You know what I'm talking about? They start to tag team with you. At one time, they double up on you. Because it's a proven fact. When two are there, it's even harder to say no. What if many come together, two or three witnesses, and we agree together for something? If we agree now together that we desperately need God's Spirit, we need Him to lead us and forgive us and to fill us, to provide that daily bread, to glorify His name and expand His kingdom. If we agree together that without Him we can't do anything, you think He's inclined to answer? Does God want to answer our prayer if we pray in faith? Well, why don't you join me right now? Let's say the Lord's Prayer. We'll take a break. Those who may want to stay behind and, and just do some question and answer time, uh, we can do that. Join me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.